Well, if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Isaiah 11. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. You can stop by the information desk on your way out, and there you will find people in masks who have uh, a Bible they would love to give you. Uh, This is the second week of our Advent series called Come and Behold. And if you are new with us or you've been away for a while, what we do here is we take books of the Bible and we work our way through them kind of section by section keeping the text in the context and looking to see what the Lord will teach us. Uh, But this is a little different. We're in a four-week Advent series, and what we're doing is we're looking at the birth of Jesus in light of the big story of redemption. That is God's big plan of salvation, which centers on His Son, Jesus. And we're seeing what is the incarnation, what does the birth of Jesus have to do with the rest of the world and the way that our lives work and and God's work throughout uh, history. Have you ever left for a trip, maybe a business trip or a holiday getaway, and thought to yourself, just as you were pulling out of the neighborhood, I I just feel like I've forgotten something. You ever done this? Uh, Yeah, I have. We've got some in front who have done that as well. Um, uh, I've done that. I've left many times. You know, I've been I've been pulling out of the driveway, leaving the neighborhood, and I can't. I know that there's something that I've forgotten. I can't identify what it is. I know I'm missing something, but I just can't put my finger on. For me, it's usually something very important that I have to replace as soon as I get to the next destination. Something like deodorant or uh, socks. I always, for some reason, uh, as I'm loading up, forget to bring my socks. Um, but we do that all the time. The thing is, it's not just physical things that we often feel like we're missing, nor does it just happen on trips. Really, we live much of our lives with that feeling that there's something we know we need that we don't have, but we can't put our finger on it. The late Birmingham novelist Walker Percy once said, we have lost something. We don't know what it is, but we are sick to death at the loss of it. It seems like so much of our lives is spent chasing something, chasing happiness, maybe most of the time. And sometimes we actually find it. We, we, we're happy for a while and we feel it, but then shortly thereafter, there's that nagging feeling that we're missing something, that, that there's something we need we just don't, we don't have. And uh, so we try all different kinds of ways to get it. We try Uh, by making a name for ourselves or or seeking pleasure or by diverting our attention or by escapist uh, efforts or whatever it is, and yet we we still end up unfulfilled. Now, that ache is dulled a little bit at Christmas time, just a little bit. But even though it's Christmas time, we have these highs and we have these lows, there's still that that ache, there's still that sense, that void that we're missing something. Now, you may think that This just applies to the rule breaker, the wanderer, the addict, the transgressor, but even people whose lives would be considered successful by just about any measure, people who've spent uh, long times in the same career and been successful, people who've been married for 50 years, 60 years, people whose children are thriving and their financial security is is all in place, they still would admit that we seem to be constantly chasing something. And, and we even get to the point, I think, in our really maybe truest moments where we realize what we're looking for, we're not going to find in this world. Uh, in his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes this, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe 
from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. Now, I mentioned at Christmas time that that old ache is dulled a little bit because we think about we come together as a family and, and our, our extended family comes in and we, we decorate and we bake food and we exchange gifts and we, we put our tree up and all of those things. And so maybe for many, for a while, that, that ache is dulled a little bit. But as soon as Christmas is over, in fact, you know, sometimes it's even the very moment after we put the decorations away, we put the tree away, we realize that we still have that sense of unfulfilled longing. We bid farewell to the relatives, we, we say goodbye to our friends, we look at the gifts that we've been given, and there's still, we see something is, is missing. Is there anything that can satisfy that feeling of lostness? Is there anything that can address that thirst that seems so unquenchable? Well, this morning we're going to see what that is, and really it's not a thing, it's a person. As we look at this passage in Isaiah, which points forward to the coming of the Messiah. And by the way, uh, we have a fantastic video, a video testimony at the end of the service um, that will actually give you a real example of how God in Christ can satisfy that longing. So let me read, uh, we're going to cover verses 1 through 10 this morning. Let me read verses 1 through 5 as we get into the text. The word of the Lord reads this way. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So, as I mentioned, we, we typically are working our way through a book. Now we're kind of jumping into a book that we haven't studied recently. So let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, this is a prophecy of the living God to the people of Judah through the prophet Isaiah. Now, there was a time when, we talked about this a few weeks ago, when the, 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 there was this united monarchy, this great kingdom of Israel ruled by the great kings like Saul and David and Solomon. Uh, but here, the kingdom has been divided. And you had Israel in the north and, and Judah in the south, and they are, they're not helping each other at all. Well, also around this point, it's around 740 B.C. when Isaiah is kind of called into to ministry, and when he is, Assyria is fast becoming a world-dominating power. And they're taking over the world by use of violence and savagery and cruelty. And Judah, this little nation in the southern part of the kingdom of Israel, they don't have a lot of power. They don't have a lot of influence. And they lack the support of their old big brother Israel. And so they really have no hope of fending off this behemoth by the name of Assyria. And sure enough, Assyria would encroach upon Judah. In fact, God would use Assyria 
to discipline his own people. Assyria was one through whom God would express his own anger at the idolatry and the perversion of Israel and Judah, just like God would do years later uh, through Babylon uh, to Habakkuk's shock. Remember that? Uh, God would use a foreign nation as a tool, in this case Assyria, to bring about the discipline of his own people. Now, God's discipline doesn't mean destruction. God disciplines the people He loves out of love. And His discipline is meant to bring us back. His discipline is meant to reconcile and and to restore. And sometimes what God does by way of discipline is he, He tears away all of those other things that we put our confidence in and ultimately that we view as saviors and and, and actually worship. For some, it's our reputation. For some, it's our career. For others, our financial security. Maybe it's our health. We say, I just can't do without good health. For others, uh, again, it's our house, whatever it is. And what God does by way of discipline is He tears away those other useless and helpless idols And he sets us free from those and keeps us close to his own heart. Well, here in Isaiah 11, even with the Assyrians threatening and and actually already wreaking havoc, they would would overtake Judah around 701 B.C. But God promises them a king who would actually rescue them. This is a king who would restore them. This is a king who would bring healing and health and peace. But it was not at all the king that they would expect. So I want you to think for a moment with me. This will be easier for some of you than it will others, perhaps if you hunt or you fish. But I want you to, I want you to imagine for a second that you're walking through a very, very dense forest. And, and it, it's so dense, the trees are so close that you have to kind of make yourself small at times. You have to, to get low. You have to watch out for branches that they don't scratch your face. You have to step over some of the high weeds so that you don't trip and fall. And everywhere you turn, you have to look out for another limb, or another branch. In fact, every single step is actually work because of the the density of the trees. And this forest is growing. It's expanding. It's it's taking over the the surrounding fields. You know how this can happen with, with undergrowth and brush and so on. So this forest is taking over the surrounding fields until... Everything is it's so dense, again, that you can't even function. Now imagine that God takes a giant axe, maybe the size of a small building, I don't know, and He cuts down everything in the forest, everything. All the trees are gone. All the brushes, all the weeds, everything is gone. And all you can see as you look out over the horizon are a bunch of stumps, trees that have been cut down and uprooted. Well, the dense forest that overtakes the surrounding fields is a metaphor that Isaiah will use to represent Assyria. The proud, self-confident, godless advancement of the Assyrian Empire. But, just like I I had you imagine, God will level Assyria. In fact, the prophet Isaiah alludes to this in the last two verses of chapter 10. He writes this, "...behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power." The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Again, this is about Assyria. I love what Old Testament theologian Tremper Longman writes. He says, The Assyrian hosts 
appear like an advancing forest. Suddenly the divine forester begins to attack undergrowth, boughs, whole trees, and even the mighty cedars of Lebanon. The pride of Assyria causes it to become an example of the general principle laid down by God in Isaiah 2. Men of pride are always riding for a fall. Now, what is this all about? This is a picture of what happens to the self-reliant. This is a picture of what happens to those who are self-confident, those who trust in their own strength, all who rest in their own ability, all who say to God, no, I've got this. No, I appreciate that you're there for me and everything, but, but I've got this. I can handle this on my own. All who advance their own personal kingdoms, all who eschew God's instruction in favor of their own wisdom and choices, they will ultimately be brought low by God. Here's our first point this morning, if you're taking notes. All who rebel against God, actively or passively, will be upended and ultimately destroyed. Now, what's the difference between active and passive rebellion? Well, we, we, we know what active rebellion is. Active rebellion is saying, God, I, I don't, I don't want to respond to you. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to come under your authority. I'm going to live my life the way that I want to live it. It's thumbing our nose at God, uh, just rejecting His authority and His Word. But passive rebellion is actually, I think, more common and more dangerous. And that comes as we actually trust in our own obedience. See, what, what the person who rejects God actively, their mindset is, I don't want you, God. But the person who rejects God passively is the one who says, the mindset that says, I don't need you, God. I, I'm okay on my own. Look at my life compared to the life of my friends. I'm not caught up in drugs. I'm not sleeping around. I'm not stealing. I haven't been in jail. All these things. They say, they, they, we always, of course, we always compare ourselves downward. But they say, look, I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm doing well here. Well, the leveled fields in Isaiah represent the futility of every attempt to advance our own kingdom, our own cause, the foolishness of trying to save ourselves. None of it ever works. It never works. But that doesn't mean that no one will be saved. Among the desolate fields, there will be a stump that stands out. See, it's not just Assyria, by the way, that's been cut down. So has the line of David. The, the royal lineage, the great kings of Israel have been relegated to nothing at this point. But even though all that can be seen is a field of stumps, from one stump, a shoot will grow. And from that, it'll become a branch that will bear much fruit. In fact, look at verse 1 again. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. When God lowers the boom on the Assyrian army, it will seem like, by all accounts, all productive life has disappeared. So there's no hope for any productive life. There's certainly no hope for the people of Israel or Judah. But God will raise up the most surprising and unexpected branch. I mentioned here, and Pastor Chris alluded to the fact that we, we like to look at things in terms of a big picture. So we don't look at the birth of Jesus as some sort of disconnected event that happened and among some other series of random events. We know that this is all part of God's one great big plan of salvation. But what's so beautiful is when we see the hints and traces of that throughout the Scripture, and here we have actually the fulfillment of what God promises way back in the Garden of Eden. 
Because of the uh, rebellion and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, God pronounces this judgment on humanity and on the earth. And He says in the middle of this curse that He's pronouncing against mankind, He says to the serpent, one will come, a seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent and actually will destroy evil altogether. And that seed from the woman Eve would be passed down through Eve's descendants, through the line of Abraham. Remember, we're told in Genesis 12 that God says to Abraham, through you, Abraham, and your seed, you're going to have kids so many, a descendants so many, it's going to be like the, 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 uh, the grains of sand on the, on the seashore, and all nations will be blessed through you. And Abraham would have a son by the name of Isaac. Isaac would have a son by the name of Jacob, and uh, Jacob would have 12 sons. Jacob would have his name changed to Israel. His sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And the promised seed, going all the way back to the garden, would come through one of Jacob's sons, Judah. You ever heard of one called the Lion of Judah? From Judah was born a child through his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And that's an entirely uh, different sermon that's more uh, PG-13. Um, the line then would continue through Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute. Ultimately, the seed continues through Boaz, who would marry a Moabite woman by the name of Ruth, who bears a son named Obed. And Obed has a son by the name of Jesse. And Jesse has a son by the name of David. And David is the most famous and glorious of all the kings of Israel. And out of the stump of Jesse, we're told, will grow a shoot. And so, as bleak and hopeless as it looks, and this is a real low point in all of humanity, as bleak and hopeless as it looks, God continues to keep His promises. Now, have you ever wondered why Isaiah doesn't say, from the stump of David, a shoot will grow? Why, why wouldn't you say that? Why does he say, from the stump of Jesse? Well, if God's people were told that hope would spring from the stump of David, they would most certainly think that this would be just another human king. And you know what happened after David in terms of the line of kings. Most of them were horrible, cowardly, evil, idolatrous, wicked, greedy, it goes, the list goes on and on. And so had Isaiah said that a seed, a, a, a branch would come from the stump of David, they would surely have thought about just another human king. But we're not told about someone from the stump of David, but from the stump of Jesse, which means not another king is coming, but another David is coming. The shoot of the stump is a reference, of course, to Jesus, the greater David. And this is a, a reference pointing forward to the incarnation, the coming of Jesus. But of course, in their terrified state, they wouldn't recognize it. They couldn't see that far in advance. The original audience of this prophecy would have been looking for something immediate, something tangible, something right away to alleviate their problem. I took my youngest daughter to the ophthalmologist last week, and uh, this particular daughter, whenever she goes to any sort of doctor's office, she's just terrified. Doctor, dentist, whatever it is. In fact, we took her just a couple of weeks ago, and when the nurse put on the, the uh, blood pressure cuff, she fainted, totally out cold, on the ground. There was no needle inside. It wasn't like somebody brought out like a big needle. Just the, just the uh, blood pressure cuff, she was done. She was out, had to be revived and so on. Uh, well, I took her to the ophthalmologist, so I was kind of bracing myself, like, this is not going to be fun. 
Uh, the whole time she's scared to death. She sits down. The doctor says, okay, um, you're going to feel a puff of air in your right eye. She looks at me. I mean, she is just horrified. And she says, she says to me and to him, kind of to no one in particular, is this going to hurt? I understand. She wants to know. I kind of jumped in before the doctor could answer. I said, no, this is going to feel amazing. Like, this is going to be like your eye went to Disney World. You're going to lo- your eye's going to love this. I said, just, and he, just, and he had to keep telling her over and over, just, just sit tight. So he did the test and then discovered that she is farsighted in one eye. So with one eye, she can't see things that are close, but only from a distance. So she'd been compensating uh, with the other eye. We wanted to get this fixed. Uh, we didn't want to jeopardize her bowling career, and so we had to get this taken care of. Um, but the doctor said, here's, here's the deal. You may, you may want to get glasses. You may not. Well, the people of Judah at this time, they had the opposite problem. They couldn't see anything beyond the immediate. Now, you have to understand, when you have a global dominating power like Assyria encroaching upon you, yeah, you're going to be terrified. But they couldn't even begin to think that this was going to happen in the future. They couldn't see beyond their immediate situation. Well, this is one of the most beautiful references to Jesus in the Bible, certainly in the book of Isaiah, and there are plenty of those. This is a reference to this ultimate king, the greater David, who will come and do what, we're told? He will rule the world. Verses 2 through 5 are God's pronouncement that there is one coming who will be fully prepared for the task of ruling the world. He has all the tools, so to speak. Now, you know over the years a lot of people have written songs about what they would do if they ruled the world. You go back to the the classic uh, rap anthem of 1985 by Curtis Blow, If I Ruled the World, what does he say he would do? I would love all the girls, he says. You know, a little less comforting if you're one of the men in his kingdom, but this is what he said he would do, at least he's honest. In that same year, 1985, you had uh, the, uh, the, the classic anthem by Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, uh, from which I, I got the sermon uh, title. And then a few years after that, in 2008, you had the, uh, the, 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 the beautiful hit by uh, Coldplay, Viva La Vida, which, uh, in which the, the main protagonist of the song kind of looks back on uh, the, the, how he ruled his own kingdom and how he lost it. And there are all kinds of other songs about people and what they would do if they would rule the world. But the reality is, there is no one equipped to rule the world. There's no one who has the ability. There's no one has, who has the skill set except one. And in verses 2 through 5, we're told about this one. He will have the anointing of the Spirit of the Lord, verse 2. He'll have the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He won't have to jockey for power. He won't have to enlist the help of other nations. He has the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Verse 3, he doesn't judge by what he sees or by what he thinks he hears. He judges with a spirit-enabled understanding. Unlike so many of our human leaders who, and I'm not going to point out anybody specific here, but if you look back on those who have changed their views over the last five years, eight years, ten years, twenty years, because of either detractors or supporters, this particular anointing one, he he won't be owned by anyone. No one will own him. No one will persuade him. No one will derail his plan. 
Verse 4, he judges with righteousness. Every intention is pure. Every action is beyond fair, even if it doesn't seem like it to us. But he's not soft. He's not a pushover. Verse 5, he will defend the weak and he will slay the wicked. Even the physical earth is subject to his authority. All will bow down before him. Now here's our second point. Unlike any other human leader throughout all of history, Jesus is uniquely qualified to rule the world. One of the most intriguing things about the Christian faith is just how counterintuitive it is in so many different ways. In fact, even the gospel itself, Paul says, is foolishness to the Greeks, right? It's foolishness to those who are perishing. And so you look at the Christian life, and there's so much about it that it doesn't really make sense to us logically. We're going to gain our life by losing it. The one who is last will be first, and the one who is first will be last. The one who will gain, who will get ahead is the one who serves others. We find salvation not by doing anything, but by believing. Now, of course, this, this counterintuitiveness, this unexpectedness, is embodied best in Jesus, the hero of the Christian faith. Throughout the Gospels, you've ever noticed this? You read the Gospels and you're reading the story and you expect Jesus to act a certain way or to respond a certain way. He almost always responds differently than we would expect. He almost always confounds his critics, surprises his audiences. He leads by serving and by sacrifice. He builds a church by running most people off. He commands people to believe, but he's not impressed by their profession of faith. Even saying in the early part of one gospel that he would not... They said they, people said they believed in him, but he would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. He wins by dying. He shows his power through meekness. Well, here in Isaiah, lest anyone mistake his kindness for weakness... Does anyone look at this coming king as the one who could be dethroned by another uh, invading army? The Lord himself says, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Now, we don't often think about Jesus this way, do we? We think about Jesus, and maybe, maybe you've got a picture like this, like my, my grandmother did in her hallway. Jesus is kind of this um, fair-skinned uh, He's got the flowing, you know, uh, conditioned hair, and he's standing there with a lamb, just sort of gently petting a lamb, and he just seems more to us like, like a life coach or maybe like a camp counselor than somebody who would slay the wicked. I love what Ray Ortland says. Uh, he says, we think of Jesus as a very nice, but when it comes to real life, incompetent person, we think too much of ourselves and our worship patronizes him and our lives set him aside, but the truth is... All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. His insight penetrates through appearances, Isaiah 11.3. Along with his brilliance, he has a passion for justice. His rule will correct the massive wrongs we are forced to accept. But he will not step on the little people in pursuing his project. He will defend the meek and slay the wicked. And I love the phrase, his rule will correct the massive wrongs we've been forced to accept. 
Because we look out at our world and we see the injustice and we see the oppression and we see the violence and we see the hatred and we are grieved by these things and we do what we can and we are vocal in, our, in pronouncing and declaring the evils of those things, but we can't change the world. We can't make the world right. But this is what this ultimate king will do. How will he make the world right? Look at verses 6 through 9. What will the corrected world look like? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you see what is conspicuously missing? Do you see what is absent in this new world? Violence, oppression, fear, stress, sickness. And what has replaced those things? Peace, wholeness, joy, innocence. The wolf and the lamb run side by side together and there are no attacks? How does this work? The the little child who's just learning to crawl, who's just sort of making his way around, he comes face to face with a cobra, a deadly cobra. And what happens? The child giggles. The cobra slithers away. The lion and the young calf sit down in the same space. No one's afraid. No one's in jeopardy. This is God's final answer to poverty, injustice, hatred, oppression. It's not a spiritual retreat. I know sometimes we think about the eternal life as this sort of spiritual existence where we float around on clouds and and we play the violin and we we just sing this never-ending worship song. And yeah, there will be worship. There'll be plenty of worship to the risen Christ in the new world. But we'll also be doing mostly earthly things. We'll be doing real, earthly, humanly, human things. It'll be a distinctly human existence, but free from sin and sin consequences and bubbling over with the grace of God. As Al Walters once said, God doesn't make junk, and He doesn't junk what He's made. He's going to make it all new. He's going to make it all right. A new humanity on a new earth doing earthly things. Yes, we will be praising Jesus, but we'll also be doing things that we enjoy now, like making music and painting art and writing literature and choreographing new dance and designing new architecture and coming up with new food and design. There will be, again, film, food, design, architecture, music, dance, gardening, writing, quilting, sports, golf. I may finally be able to hit a golf ball straight. This is something to look forward to in the new world. We're going to be doing all of these earthly things, but free from sin and disease. It'll be everything we enjoy now, only immeasurably better. As one person has said, His grace will add sparkle to World Cup soccer, classical guitar, 
business ventures, monopoly with the kids, everything human to the greater glory of God. Now, you say, what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, Advent is the season of looking back at the birth of Jesus, which is the first Advent, the first coming, the incarnation, while at the same time keeping an eye toward the second Advent, the return of Jesus. So the fact that Jesus came and inaugurated this new kingdom is evidence that God is not going to scrap what He's already made, but in fact is going to return in great glory and restore everything that's wrong with this broken world. And Advent is, we're really, we're caught in the middle of this, and Advent is a time where we, yes, we're filled with hope, but also sadness as we see what's going on in our world. We're filled with, yes, exhaustion and fatigue and stress, but also with great optimism that God will be true to His promises. It's, it's a season couched with gratefulness, but also longing. Christ has come, and He will come again. And unlike any other king or any other rule to, rule to ever exist, He is the anointed one with all wisdom and power, and He has good news for the future, but also good news for us now. Here's our final point this morning. Since Christ is qualified to rule and restore the world, He can be trusted with our own lives as well. Again, you've heard me say before, as Christians, we have a foot in two worlds, the already and the not yet. The already of Christ's birth, sinless life, death, resurrection, but the not yet of His return in great glory. And so we're, we're, we are really caught in the middle here. We experience both. We see the pain and the agony of disease. And, and we have people in our church right now who have covid some who are, who are handling it or, or, or receiving it better than others. Some who are, who are doing fine and no symptoms. And others who are saying, this thing is killing me. This thing is horrible. Disease and sickness and hatred and violence. And we see all of those things. That's the, that, that's the already. That's the kingdom that's been inaugurated but not been fulfilled. As we look forward to what God will bring about. And we see evidence of that too. We see as He is reconciling broken relationships. We see as He's bringing people to saving faith. We see as He is restoring people who have been estranged. So we see both. We see both of it at the same time. Well, Advent, again, is a time of hope, not just in the great future cosmic renewal, which we've talked about for a moment, that God is bringing about, but also hope that this same rescuer will actually sustain me even now. It's hope that this same deliverer that Isaiah is, is foreshadowing will actually do something in my life right now. He'll bring about something out of this mess. He will restore beauty out of these ashes. And in fact, He does. In Christ, we are reconciled to God. We are forgiven and made new. So all of those things that we've done, some that nobody knows about, some horribly egregious, some that we're ashamed to talk about, all of those things that we've done, we find complete and total forgiveness in Christ. Not only that, but we're given a purpose for our lives. We're brought into a new family where, where God is our Father and Christ is our brother. And our brother, Christ, is constantly praying for us and interceding for us. He is actually in us and for us even now. He is strengthening us. 
He is giving us a supernatural joy. He is imparting to us a hope that doesn't depend on our circumstances. We have nothing to fear from Him. We are foolish to resist Him. We can never be too loyal to Him. We can never be too trusting. Again, this Jesus is in us and for us. And this is a word of incredible, unparalleled hope, but it's not just for us. Look at verse 10, our last verse for this section. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, this is fascinating. You notice what I read in the first verse, that Isaiah is talking about someone who will come who is a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And here, this person is called the root of Jesse. Not the stump, but the root. And then the reason is, he doesn't just come from the line of Jesse. This is so good. He actually is before Jesse. He was not just from Jesse. He actually created Jesse. This is one of the reasons we know this is not just a reference to another human king in the lineage of David. This was this one. He was of human origin, but he was also the creator of Jesse. And in fact, of all of humanity, he is the God-man. And as the God-man, he is always making things new. He will make all things new. But even now, he's making things new. He is taking our messed up lives and our conflict and our failures and our uh, botched decisions And our rebellious tendencies, he's taking all of those things and he is making beauty out of ashes. He is taking the mess that we've made and in Christ he is redeeming it as he brings us to himself, as he purges us of all guilt and shame, and as he continues day by day and moment by moment to conform us into the image of his son as he pours out God's love in our hearts. And in verse 10, it's not just just for us. He he stands as a signal for all the peoples. This word refers to a welcoming banner, capturing our attention, drawing us in. So he's not just come to give us peace, but he is a beacon for the whole world. And that is for those of every every tongue, tribe, nation, those of every race, ethnicity, those of every family background, those of every educational background, those of every socioeconomic status, he's inviting all to come. And he's inviting all to receive hope and new life. And maybe you're here this morning and we talk about this rebellion against God and maybe you, you know now because the Spirit has revealed it to you this morning, you fit in the category of active rebellion. You, you may even profess to be, you know, to be a Christian, but you know you are living apart from God's revelation. You have determined, though you've never said it out loud, you have determined you're going to do whatever you want to do, and nobody's going to stop you. You're not coming under God's authority. You're not coming under anybody's authority. Well, even now this morning, God is giving you an opportunity to repent of your rebellion and to turn from this hopeless and purposeless and unfulfilling existence and be brought into the family of God by faith in Jesus. 
Uh, maybe you're here and, and, and you realize you're actually in the second camp. You, 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 would never, you, you would never say to God that you've turned against Him. You claim to be a follower of God and to come under His authority, but the reality is you're passively rebelling against God in that. What you're really trusting in is your own goodness, your own membership at church, your own attendance, your own giving, your own sacrifice, your own baptism, whatever it is, and you actually are your own Savior. Even though, of course, you would never say that. But what you're really trusting in, and this is, can I be so honest as to say this is much more pervasive in the South than I think certainly the act of the outright rebellion. It's those who, I've been a, I've been a member of this church for years, I've been doing this, I've been a Christian for years. But actually what they're, what they're really depending on is the fact they've never killed anybody, they go to work every day, they're an American, whatever, you know, they're a Republican, whatever it is, but they're not trusting in Jesus. Their righteousness is one they cling to on their own, not the righteousness that is theirs by faith. And Isaiah tells us, there is one coming, and he's not far off. He will upend and destroy all who rebel against him. But, he, he, like a banner inviting people in, he says, to all who are exhausted, to all who are weary, to all who are so tired of that void that cannot be filled, that thirst that cannot be slaked, he says, come to me and I'll give you real rest, rest for your soul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, will you help us this morning to believe what you have shown us in your word? And I want to pray for that. I have to imagine, Lord, of course, you know the hearts of every man and every woman and every child. I have to imagine in a group of people this size that there's someone here who is rebelling against you, who will not come under your authority, who will not trust in you. And I pray, Father, that you would do work by your spirit. I pray that you would bring that person to repentant faith. And I want to pray for the person who is who's passively rebelling against you. They would never, ever say, God, I don't want you. But in their hearts, they believe they don't need you. Because when they look around, they see they're actually, in their minds, better than most people. Father, will you help them to realize this morning that their very best righteousness, the very best they can do, do it's like a dirty, disgusting rag when compared to the splendor of your holiness. Father, I pray today would be the day when you bring some to saving faith, when you encourage those who are broken, and you, when you restore to us the joy of your salvation. Cause it to be so, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.